Are you still shedding your vaccine? Do you have the midday quarantini still? These are words that we didn't use a couple of years ago. These are words and, and phrases that were part of the, the lexicon or of the pandemic, or as our next guest calls it, the pandexicon. Before we get to our next guest on this, uh, for a conversation that will be funny um, and, and probably infuriating as we remember some of what we went through in COVID, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to Full Comment Podcast. And hello, this is the Full Comment Podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, your host. You can subscribe on whatever device or app you're listening to us on. And I encourage you to do that as well as leave us a review. Um, Wayne Grady is someone who has written... Close to 30 books, and his latest one is a look at how language changed during the pandemic. And what's fascinating is that I, I was part of that changing language as a daily writer of what was happening in COVID and didn't always stop to think about how it was changing, how we were using words that weren't there before, how we all became experts in things that we'd never heard of before, using very scientific language. But Wayne did. He documented it and put it in his new book, a collection of essays on the various words and phrases that came to dominate our lives for three years. Wayne, thanks for the time today. Well, thanks for having me. How did you come up with this concept of, well, language is changing. I'm going to document it. Well, yeah, that's a really good question. Having written a few books in the past about Topics that were constantly changing, uh, like global warming, for example. Uh, how do you write about something? How do you write about a moving target in a way that that when the book comes out, it's not going to be automatically out of date? And I I hit on the idea of the writing about the the words that we use because they they are things that weren't going to change. The, when we talk about face masks in 2020, it meant the same thing that it, that they meant that face masks meant in 2022 and 23 and probably 2033. Uh, and so I I decided to sort of pin the sort of use the words the, the lexicon of of uh, the pandemic as sort of the the structure or the skeleton for the book, and then hang the essays on that. And, and hopefully, hopefully uh, these words will be, and well, my, my, my theory is that these words will still be being used years and years down the road, long after the pandemic is, we hope, over. The first section of your book is about the before times, and that's a phrase that I still use, um, mm -hmm. because often, I, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess it's the same. You're sitting there trying to remember when something happened, Mm -hmm. Was that the beginning of the pandemic? Was that the middle? No, no, that was in the before times. Uh, uh, tell me about that phrase. Your thoughts on on that that it, it's like a, a marking of an epoch. Yeah, well, I think you know we try to. I tried to avoid paradigm shift in the book, but but that's really what it was. I mean, one thing that the that the pandemic did i think was to sort of fuse memory so as you say it's very difficult to remember you know the last time the last time i we went to a movie uh was it was it 2020 did, you know was it 2021 or was it 2019 uh it has been that long and you know it's 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 always been difficult for me and and for many people to actually pinpoint how many years ago x happened but i think the pandemic made it exacerbated that tendency because because not much happened you know i mean we were i mean a lot a lot happened around us 
But we were, you know, sequestered in our, in our apartments or our, our houses. Uh, we didn't go out much. We didn't have people over. We didn't go to parties. We didn't go to restaurants, the, I mean, most of us. And so time sort of lagged and time sort of um, coalesced into, into, uh, into an amorphous thing. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's all we can really say is that it was before COVID or it was, it was since COVID. So like that, you know, the before times we can pretty much identify, but, but whether something happened in year one of COVID, year two of COVID, I find, I find it very difficult now to remember. I did start making notes about things and that in, in a way the book, when you, when I arranged the words in the book uh, into an order, I found myself arranging them chronologically. Uh, and that, and that sort of, as you say, it starts with the before times. It starts with the, with the phrases that we began to use early on in the pandemic. Uh, and that, in that way, when you go back and read the book, it does read like a history of the, of the pandemic, the pandemic up until now. Uh, but I didn't really write it in, intended that way when I was writing it. I just was writing essays about those specific words and phrases. Yeah, it's, it, it's a history of the pandemic through language. Now, you yeah. start off by telling the story of where you and your wife were when the before times ended. Yeah. So tell me that. You were, you were in Mexico. Were, were you were, just on a vacation or snowbirds? We're snowbirds, I guess. Although, that, to me, that word always means me- uh, Florida. <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, <laughs> we've been going to Mexico now for 12 years uh for six months a year uh, for the summer for the winter months my my wife has uh marilyn has uh severe asthma and here in ontario at the at the downwind end of the great lakes uh it gets very humid and and damp in the winter and and very difficult for her to breathe so we go we we go to mexico we go to a place called san miguel de allende which is up in the mountains very high and dry temperature is 25 degrees celsius every single day of the year uh, and uh, but very dry, so it's great for someone with asthma. Uh, so wh- that's where we were in, and we co- we we go in October uh, or November and come back in April or May. And uh, that in 2020, it, we began to notice that that uh, uh, you know th- things were ha- heating up in terms of the of the, of COVID. It, w- it had been declared a pandemic early March. Uh, and uh, borders were beginning to be closed. Um, people, you had, people, airlines were saying you had to get PCR tests and, and uh, before you could enter the country, before you could get on the airplanes. So and we thought, and also Air Canada announced that in the following, on the, I think it was on the 18th or something like that, Air Canada announced that a week from then they would stop running daily flights from Mexico City to Toronto and reduce them to, to uh to, to weekly flights. And we realized that if that, when that happened, we would probably not get out of Mexico for a long time because there are so many people booked, trying to book their way back. So we, we booked uh, a flight on the, on the 20th of March and uh, got back into, into Canada. And, and um, there were people not wearing masks on the plane. There were people wearing masks. Uh, there were very few people. We landed in the airport in Toronto uh, at the same time as a flight from New York city and uh, almost no one uh, in the uh, in the immigration section of the airport were wearing masks and that didn't really dawn on us at the time that that was unusual that was going to be unusual um, now th- those were still the days when they were telling us not to 
wear masks. Well, There's no need to wear masks. Yeah, they were still saying don't wear masks unless you're showing symptoms of having having COVID. Uh, you don't don't stay home unless you're showing symptoms. Uh, I think when we landed on March 20th, I think there had been 200 deaths in in Canada at that time uh, from COVID, and we thought that was a lot. I mean, it was a lot, uh, and but we had no, and we had no idea how much worse it was going to get. Uh, we, the borders we weren't quarantined at the border. Nobody was being quarantined at that point, but. Uh, you See, know. you're you're already using yeah. words that that we just didn't use before. Yeah. Quarantine was around, but when was the last time we had quarantine orders in Canada? I know, I know, and it, and and we had to we had to reacquaint ourselves with what this very ancient term meant and why we did it. That's right. I, I, I one of the things I did in each with each word is look up where the word came from. Quarantine came from uh, from Italy in the I think the 15th century, when uh, the the plague was in Europe and uh, ships coming from the east, where they thought everyone thought the plague was coming from, when ships arrived at a port in Italy, uh, they had to uh, spend a month or four weeks on a uh, on a four weeks forty days on an island off the coast before the, before anyone from the ship was allowed to 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 go into the port in Italy. And those four, uh, 40 days were called, were, were called the quarantine. And that's where that phrase came from. Um, we know it's no longer 40 days. It's now, you know, in, in, it was, I forget how long it was in Canada. In, in France, it was two weeks and they, they called it the quarantaine in, in French, the 14 rather than the 40. Um, but yeah, we have never used it. Yeah. Ours was 14 days. And, you know, who, who went away on a trip? And thought about, well, when I come back from Mexico, Florida, California, Arizona, well, I'm going to have to quarantine. Yeah. And then that just became a part of everyday language. Yeah. Yeah. I We're not it. using it anymore, and I'm happy about that. No. For a while, it was daily use. Yeah. Yeah. It was a daily concern. Uh, that's part of my, part of my, uh, the reason I wrote the book is that uh, the way I did is that I think that once that when words enter the language permanently like that, it's because the, 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 the event has entered our lives permanently. So I think that, that we are going to be, uh, the, the pandemic and COVID-19 are going to have, uh, be affecting our lives for a long time to come, long after, you know, people are not, um, people are no longer, it's not, it's no longer a, a, a worldwide pandemic. Um, it's probably not a pandemic now. I think the pandemic has officially been declared over, but people are yeah. still dying from it. Uh, the long-term effects, the social, the social effects, the political effects, the economic effects, and the psychological effects are going to be with us for a very long time. One of the other phrases that you used in describing you and your wife coming back from Mexico was PCR test, which stands right. for uh, polymerase chain reaction test. Right. That's one of those phrases that um, we didn't use before. It's very scientific, mm -hmm. but we all became experts. Yeah, we all I became know. experts in these scientific phrases. I, I covered both SARS and uh, swine flu mm -hmm. um, when that went through. Ooh, that would have been what two thousand nine, I think. One of my kids was quite ill with with swine flu. Uh -huh. We never, we didn't react in the same way. We didn't have all of these terms like zoonotic. 
Right. Um, and, and yet zoonotic would apply to both SARS and swine flu, but we weren't using it. Um, so so talk, talk to me a bit about that, about how these uh, very scientific phrases entered our language. Well, yeah, scientific and psychological, which I guess is the same thing. But yeah, PCR tests, I mean, most of us now refer to PCR without really actually i mean i had to stop for a minute to think to remember what pcr stood for i'm glad you reminded <laughs> me but uh you know it's it's a, it's it's a test that takes a takes a swab from from the uh from from a nasal swab and if there's even a small amount of of the of the virus of the coronavirus which is another scientific term we didn't use before uh in and and magnifies it to such an extent that it it shows up in 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 the uh in the, later in the test uh it's, it, it, you know, we, and even that was superseded by the rapid, rapid antigen tests that we, that we, that you could get at the drugstore the government was handing out. Everybody takes, um, I used, we used to call them rat tests and big uh, R-A-T, random, sorry, rapid antigen tests. The yes. word antigen, you know, we all know, we all know what an antigen is and we all know what antibodies are. We all, so I think we, many of us walk around wondering how many antibodies we have <laughs> floating around in our, in our, in our systems uh, and hoping it's a lot. Um, yeah. The science, the science, science and, and also um, um, psychological terms like self isolation uh, for, for many, many years, psychologists have been saying that self, self isolation is not a good thing. Uh, it, it can lead to depression. It can lead to, to various psychological disorders. Or be a re- or be a symptom of psychological disorders, and suddenly the government was telling us we must self isolate, <laughs> and so <laughs> we said, well, "What's well, what's that going to?" And there were a lot of people writing about what what's that going to mean socially for us when the pandemic is over after having self isolated for three two or three years. Uh, I think we're still figuring that part out. Yeah, and it's going to take a while to for the, for those symptoms to sh- to for for those effects to show. They have been studying the effects of previous uh, ep- episodes of self isolation. For example, uh, during the ice storm here in uh, Ontario and Quebec in 1989, I think it was uh, when people no, were ni- like, 99. I was 99. Yeah, that, that's when, when I moved there. <laughs> <laughs> good timing. Uh, when people uh, were isolated in their homes for for weeks and then uh, because of the ice storm until they were uh, released, um, the long term psycho- the long term psychological effects from that have been studied and 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 people were wondering whether those studies would apply to uh, the long term effects of COVID. Uh, and you know something like ten percent of the people who experienced those that isolation ended up with uh, serious psychological um, problems that uh, persisted after, after, the, uh, after the event was over. It'll, it'll be a long time before we understand how, how severe those, those, uh, those effects have been. I, I write about that in the last chapter of the book, which is after times. Um, but the, the outlook is, is that for many, many people, there, we're going to be, uh, exp- you know, being affected by the things that happened to us during the pandemic. I mean, and it makes sense, right? I mean, it's, I think it's, I think it's as big a, 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 an event in, in our lives as, uh, well, I would say even World War II for many of us, uh, certainly as big as 9-11, for example. The way 9-11 has entered the language, I don't have to explain what I mean by 9-11. Uh, 
anymore. And so I don't think I need to explain what I mean by COVID. Uh, I think I'll never, I'll never think of a uh, face mask as something I wear when I'm playing hockey anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, now, so at the beginning of the book, you, you write about how um, these past events and you're describing other past events mm-hmm. uh, like nine 11 um, mm-hmm. or, or the ice storm, but also in the book, you talk about different wars or you just mentioned quarantine mm-hmm. um, and, and that these big events gave us words that stayed in the lexicon. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we'll be using variant in the same way? I mean, variant can have many meanings, but you know, from all the words that you looked at, is there anything that is going to stick with us? Um, well, as I, I think face mask will stick with us. Uh, I, I never really thought about face masks before the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, they were something that you see, if you watch doctor shows on television, you see them wearing those, those uh, surgical masks. Uh, and, you know, uh, and a lot of people th- still think uh, during the pandemic that those surgical masks were effective against, pan- against COVID uh, and, and cloth masks. Uh, yeah, I think I think a term words like face mask, hand washing. I mean, now I I don't know if about most people, but I I find myself washing my hands more often and more consciously than I did before. Um, I don't actually hum the words to "Happy Birthday" as I'm washing my hands to time myself to see how long. <laughs> but I do. I I you know I do look at my hands and say, "Oh, I better wash my hands." And I I didn't do that quite so often before. Um, yeah, yeah, public public health would have told you to. Yeah, um, I know. They yeah. would have told all of us to, but we we just didn't do it with the same rigor as we did. Yeah, especially in those early days of the pandemic. Yeah, well, we did in I guess we did in hospitals. Um, um, the the hand sanitizer. I think you know, seeing those is going to bring back seeing those little jars of hand sanitizer are going to bring back a lot of memories. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was rooting through a, a jacket I hadn't worn for a couple couple of years, and I found. I found a, a white uh, N95 face mask in in the pocket, and I, I you know I only wear I, we ordered a whole bunch of black N95 masks a while ago, and so for the last couple of, last year or so I've only worn black face masks, and so I pulled out this white one, and it suddenly when did I wear white face masks? Oh yeah, it was back in 2021 or something like that. Um, so there there's a lot social distancing I think is going to be uh, with us for a long time as a phrase. Um, and, and I think people are, you know, somebody said to me the other day that when they, when they, when they go into, when they look into it, want to go to a restaurant and they look into the, through the door of the restaurant, if it's too crowded and nobody's wearing face masks, they say, no, it's too COVIDy. Uh, I'm not going in there. Uh, nobody's social distancing. And I, I think, you know, five years ago, if I said we, we, we should be social distancing, no one would have any idea what I was talking about, but I think everyone does now. It was a phrase that we invented um, yeah. for the pandemic. It, uh, and then, you know, we had to have experts explain it to us and, it, 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 and then have it repeated ad nauseum yeah. uh, for us yeah. to figure it out. Yeah. Do you think that there was um, an attempt by uh, people, I mean, you write about uh, government's role in all of this, you write about anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, Mm-hmm. Do you think that either side or any side or anybody involved in this, were people using language um, in mean, manipulative ways uh, for good or for bad? 
Were they mm-hmm. using it to try and, and instill fear or, or, or changing the language to make us act in certain ways? Was, was that part of what was happening during COVID? I think so. I think there was a real divide. Well, you mentioned anti, anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers. I think there, well, I know there was a real divide between people who, you know, wore masks or, or got the vaccine when, when they became available, available and people who, who refused to do so. Uh, and, and there was a lot of pressure on, on, on various, on both sides to conform to what, to what those, what those people believed. Um, and so, you know, the, the term anti-vaxxer is essentially a negative term. Um, it, it's, it's, it's something that a person who is vaccinated would say about a person who won't get vaccinated. Oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. Well, uh, it, it's been hurled at me and I've been vaccinated. Yeah. But part of my job as a journalist is to question governments. I cover yeah. politicians. And, yeah. and, and so anytime that I would question... Um, Okay, well, these we've got these restrictions or these regulations. Are they still necessary? Someone right. would say, "Well, you're an anti-vaxer." Right. Yeah. Well, let's see. That's they're using they're using the language to sort of put you in a box and and dismiss your concerns because you're you're identified as as someone who's little on you know little uh, unreasonable about about the things that are necessary to do to uh, think the the term anti-vaxxer as i write in the book comes is a sort of a, a holdover from the anti-measles vaccine movement that took place back it was beginning in 2007 i don't know if you remember but but oh uh, i i do there was a, a woman who wrote a book about raising a, an autistic child and she had refused to have that ch- she had connected his measles vaccine with his autism on on oprah and immediately there was this long this huge uh, there had been a, an article published in the i think the I it was think the lancet in the lancet yeah uh, which had which was refuted in the next issue of the lancet and withdrawn it was the only time the Lan- the first time anyway that the lancet had actually uh, withdrew an article from from that they had published before because there was no scientific evidence for the for the claim that uh, the vaccine for measles, mumps, and and uh, MMR, rubella. whatever, ru- yeah, rubella, uh, was linked to increased risks of uh, autism in children. That was never proven. It's not. It is. In fact, it has been disproven that that such is the case. But once it got on Oprah and got out there. Uh, it became a, a, a huge movement, and and people were anti-vaxxers in those days were were the people who wouldn't have their children vaccinated against measles. So we just picked that phrase up. Um, we need to take a break, but when we come back, let's talk more about the the use of language, weaponization of language by uh, people for various causes. When we come back, speaking about the way that language has changed, the way that COVID impacted the way we use English. Uh, when I want to just d- dive a bit deeper on some of these terms, weaponization of uh, of terms, um, anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, we've discussed, those were used to dismiss people. Mm-hmm. Um, issues like lockdown, though, that if, if, if I told you before COVID that we were going to lock you down, mm-hmm. that would sound horrible. And yet it became what people demanded. I mean, that to me, that is a, a big change, yeah. I guess, in how we interpret language. 
Well, lockdown is one of those terms that we borrowed from the military uh, or the paramilitary, and uh, it, it, it's a prison term. It's what they do in prisons when there's a riot. They lock down a certain section of the, of the prison to prevent uh, information from getting out or getting in uh, and, or weapons from getting out or getting in. And it's a, it's a negative term. It's something that we should, when we hear there's been a lockdown in, I live in Kingston, there are 19 federal and provincial prisons in the Kingston, Ontario <laughs> neighborhood. I know what a lockdown means. And uh, it's, it's not, it's never good. It means that there's trouble in one of the prisons. And um, uh, so it's, it's a term that has sort of already has a negative connotation. And when we, when we, and it, one of the biggest uses of it was in China where they, they locked down the entire country for almost two years. And, and, and so when, when we were, you know, when we were told to stay home, we, uh, you know, to self-isolate or to, to, uh, to not go to work and not go to restaurants and theaters and et cetera, we referred to that as a lockdown as if it was a huge imposition that we really, you know, was really going to be a terrible thing to have to go through when in fact it, you know, it, it wasn't, it was just, it was a reasonable thing to, to ask someone to do. There's a respiratory illness out there that's killing uh, millions of people. Maybe it's a good idea to avoid going places where you might catch it. Uh, that's what, that's all that lockdown meant. And, uh, and in fact, the way the government expressed it, it was in Canada anyway, and in, in the West, most Western countries, it was never a direct order. You must lock down. <laughs> it was, if, you know, stay home if you can, or try to avoid uh, contact with other people if it's convenient. Uh, it was never, it was never uh, as, as I recall, it was never a strict order. Uh, well, they, it, it, de- it depended on where you live, both in Canada and in the world. At one point, Quebec did invoke a curfew, uh, and they were yeah. arresting people who were outside at, at certain times of, yeah. uh, of the day. Yeah, and they were closing uh, and, restaurants and, 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 yeah. and, you know, and, 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 sports in, um, and things. in parts of, uh, of Canada, the, uh, the restrictions were stronger in, in parts of the United States at times, they were stronger than what we had. It all, it, yeah. it did vary. None were, as you say, as serious as China, where, um, if you've seen the video, they were literally welding doors shut to keep yeah. people inside. Yeah. We didn't go yeah. that far. But it, it it was it was a big change. But as I said, lockdown is something that um, if I had said, Wayne, we're going to lock you down, you would have said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. But there were many people that wanted more restrictions. It, yeah. That that's that there was a big psychological change in how you viewed a word or a phrase that a year earlier you yeah. would have thought, there's no way I want the government to do that. Then there was a large part of the population that wanted that. They want more security, more sense of security coming from, more direction coming from the government. One of one of the, uh, you know, one of the one of the ways that that all the governments worked uh, during the during the pandemic was to have lockdowns or have severe restrictions for a while, and then let open things up so let the economy recover a little bit, and then when when the numbers started going up in the hospitals again, to shut down restaurants and, and sports arenas and beaches and parks and things. And then when people started complaining about too, there being too many restrictions, they would open those up and then the numbers would start to climb, climb again. And there were people who said, look, this is, this is not working. It's, it's, this, is not, this is not dealing with the, pan, with the epi- pandemic. 
we are uh, we should stay one way or the other. Either like Sweden, for example, stayed. They didn't have any lockdowns. They didn't shut anything down. They just they just let people be, go the way they shut down the borders. I think at some point, but they didn't they didn't close restaurants or uh, or have have uh, personal lockdowns. Uh, to, and that was that got into the whole idea. Another phrase that that is in the book is herd immunity, uh, where Sweden's approach was to let the let the COVID nineteen sort of run through the population, get as many people to get it as possible. Because once you they thought once you get it, you have uh, an immunity to getting it again, uh, uh, which turned out to not be the case. Uh, and, uh, so there were, there were people who thought Sweden had the, was, had the right way to go. There are other people who thought that China had the, had the right way to go. There was a movement called zero COVID, uh, in which they, you know, in some places in, in Eastern, Eastern Canada and in Northwest territories, they just shut everything down. Don't let anybody in, don't let anybody out. Uh, and, uh, let's just brace ourselves for for a, a bad few months and, and and let this thing work itself out uh, no no single approach worked very well china china's lockdown severe and australia's was another country and new zealand was another country uh, they had the lockdown for quite a while uh, two years in china and then um, and then unusual for china uh, there was there was a public outcry. There were there were demonstrations in the streets to uh, to lift the lockdown. Uh, China gave in and they did lift the lockdown. And then COVID got in and just you know the, a million and a half people died in the next three months. You um you you're right that in in Canada mm-hmm. and many parts of the United States we went up and down. Yeah. Um and uh, and then and this is one of the phrases. One of the phrases that you use in the book, we uh, we had to apply an emergency break. But yeah. you say that wasn't a very good term to use. Well, uh, it was Ontario Premier Doug Ford used it to yeah. describe what it was going to do. And um, now I'm going by memory. I think that was April 2021. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, April, and, yeah, March, April. And, yeah. and you said, not a good term. Why not? Well, for one thing, you, you only put a... Your, in your car, you only put your emergency brake on when the car is already stopped. <laughs> Doug Ford used that term to, to say he's going to apply the emergency brake in order to stop the spread of COVID. Uh, after having left things open for so long that, that COVID had, you know, had run rampant through the, pro- through the province, he suddenly said, I'm going to put on the emergency brake and, and impose restrictions on, on uh, everything imaginable where people might might uh, uh, catch COVID, but the, using the word emergency is already, a, you know, a, a flag that, that makes people f- feel nervous. I mean, uh, it, it, if how did things become an emergency or why are things an emergency now when they weren't an emergency two years ago? Um, and I, so I, I think that, and, and also the other thing that with, with that particular incident, Ford uh, empowered the police to stop people on the streets and in the, to stop cars on the highway and ask them if if they're if what where they were going was a, an essential uh, trip, uh, and that started ma- uh, uh, making a lot of people think that this was getting a little too right wing. Well, uh, so I covered that extensively, and what fascinated yeah. me about that is they there was a group of people who were uh, supporters of uh, COVID zero who yeah. wanted the type of lockdowns that we had in Melbourne 
Right. And in Melbourne, that included arresting you if you went too far from your home. Yeah, five and kilometers when, or something. Yeah. And when Ford brought it in, I, I, I thought that was ridiculous and, and he shouldn't be doing it. But the people screaming the loudest were the ones who had been calling for the Melbourne lockdowns. COVID yeah. was not good to a lot of us psychologically. I know. And there, it, it's, it, it, it affected us so, ma- so many of us in ways that were not logical. Uh, and, and I think that is the kind of thing that's going to, is going to stay with us. It was when they, when they did that study on the ice storm that I mentioned earlier in, in Montreal and, and, and well, here in Kingston, they, they found that what the hardest thing on, on people psychologically was the uncertainty of when it was going to be over. And I think with COVID, it's, it's the same kind of thing. We did not, we, we had no way of being certain or knowing in any way how long this was going to last, how long the lockdowns were going to last, how long we were going to be allowed to go to restaurants. Uh, and the uncertainty, the, long, the long-term effect of the uncertainty, I think, is, is, uh, is, is what is going to be with us for a long time. In fact, that, whole, that, that, that word uncertainty, I should have put that in the book because that's a, a phrase that came up over and over again with people talking about the negative effects of the, of the pandemic. Uh, but you were, we were talking earlier about about how we use negative language to 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 talk about the pandemic, or how the language that we used dis, uh, um, showed that we had a negative attitude towards towards the uh, towards what was happening. And using words like uh, one of the phrases I have in the book is the is vaccine apartheid. Uh, and that uh, that that's the one that I was just about to to ask oh, yeah. you about. You you've got seven different. Um, instances where you use vaccines, including vaccines, vaccine shedding, vaccine passport, vaccine yeah. nationalism, vaccine yeah. hunters, vaccine diplomacy. Vaccine yeah. apartheid is actually extremely offensive to me. Uh-huh. I, I I hate that term, but it yeah. was used. Well, and it was used, be- and I think people wanted people using it wanted you to hate that term because they wanted to lift. The vaccine apartheid. It was actually someone from uh, the, the pr- prime minister of South Africa that used that first used that term in his speech uh, to the World Health Organization, saying that it was the, the way that the vaccine was being distributed around the world amounted to vaccine apartheid because certain countries, certain countries that were not in Africa, <laughs> were getting uh, the the lion's share of the available vaccine doses. Where, uh, North America was 80, 60 to 70 percent vaccinated, fully vaccinated at that time. Europe was uh, 70 to 80 percent vaccinated, whereas countries in Africa were 10 percent or five between five and 10 percent vaccinated. And and because the North, because the rich countries were hoarding doses of vac- of vaccine, and poor countries were not getting there enough to give the, to protect their citizens, and and uh, the, the president of South Africa said this amounts to vaccine apartheid, and the WHO, the leader of the WHO, agreed with him. He said this: we're not talking about about uh, leading to a vaccine a situation of vaccine apartheid. We're t- we are actually in a situation of vaccine apartheid, um, and well, so uh, that uh, led to a whole discussion about one of your other terms, patent waiver. And, yes. and and suddenly people went from being experts in um, in infectious diseases to <laughs> uh, intellectual property law. I know, I know. And as a member of the Canadian Writers Union, I've been dealing with copyright issues for years. So I had a bit of an idea of what was going on there and, and the resistance to opening up copyright. 
yeah, so patent waiver, uh, and if if I do a second version of this book or or uh, another another uh, revision of it, I'm going to have to add to pat the patent waiver entry. Patent waiver was when uh, poor countries like India, uh, um, South Africa, many co- African countries uh, asked the owners of the copyrights of the vaccines, the com- companies like Pfizer and Moderna, to allow the, allow the manufacturers in those poor countries to manufacture their vaccines in, the, in those countries rather than those countries having to buy the vaccine from the, from the com- corporations, or the, the pharmaceutical companies in the rich countries. They couldn't afford it. Uh, and and so there was a there was a, a a movement a request to the WHO to actually force those companies to release their patents, um, and the WHO and the World Trade Organization, the WTO, uh, had, had their hands were tied. They said because many countries had signed uh, a, a treaty saying that they would they would honor recognize the copyright of other countries, member countries of the WTO. And so they couldn't order somebody to, to release the patent. But the, the, it was a humanitarian request. The companies, on the pharmaceutical companies on their own were asked to release it, and, and they wouldn't do it, and they still haven't done it. Even though uh, since the book came out, the, WT, the WHO has, uh, has required, requested the companies uh, to release their patents, and companies have said they would, they still haven't. So it was legal. For, it was okay for a for a country like China uh, or India to manufacture a, um, a, a vaccine that was patented in another country under license, where they had to pay pay the other pay the pharmaceutical company for that for that right. But they but they were never allowed to to sort of just start making the vaccine on their own without without paying for it uh, a lot for it. Have you have you looked at whether we've seen um, such large scale language adaptation like this before COVID? Well, I think World War II. I, I mentioned that earlier. You know, things that were invented during World War II are, are now in the language. Um, ballpoint pens, for example, were invented by uh, the Air Force so that air, uh, airline pilots could, or, or yeah, airline people in airplanes could could write. Uh, on their charts, they only they couldn't. You can't use a, a fountain pen at thirty thousand feet. Uh, if you and, and so they invented the ballpoint pen. Uh, the jeep was invented during the Second World War. Um, so lots of terms like that uh, have entered the language. Uh, spam. Spam. Yeah. Yeah. Which has taken on a new meaning, well beyond the luncheon meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that's uh, I think yeah that's the one that comes to mind to me most clearly. What, what about differences between um, either classes? You know, was there a class difference uh, in how language changed, or um, how does English differ from other languages in dealing with it? You, you mentioned earlier uh, the French had a different term; they didn't use quarantine. Yeah, they used quarantine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Did, what about those differences? Did you notice any at, of those? I looked in, at uh, mo- the book deals mainly with the language, uh, the English language, how it's changed. Because I don't, you know, I, I didn't have access to a lot of other languages. But I did. I did read a, a study that sh- said that Germany, Germany had come up with fifteen hundred new 
phrases to talk <laughs> about the pandemic. Um, I don't know if they actually came up with any new words. Um, you know, the German thing is to uh, is to take existing words and bunch them together to to mean something to mean something else. Uh, I know that uh, in Holland they came up, they started using a word um, um, to to describe the. It's called in it would be literally translated as hamstering. So I think, it, and it meant. Um, stocking up on things that you think are going to be in short supply later on. So people who hamstered toilet paper uh, and people hamstered uh, uh, batteries, flashlight batteries and things like that. Um, hamstering. Hamstering. We called yeah. it hoarding. Yeah. Yeah. And I still, but, I still don't understand the toilet paper hoarding at the beginning. I know. It's the last thing I would have, I would have thought of. I, I did say that, you know, I, I would understand coffee or Earl Grey tea, <laughs> or something, <laughs> but toilet paper. But you know, it it, it it does make sense in the long run when you look back. Because think, you know, if you when we were allowed into the supermarkets, the we talked that, that one of the things that came up a lot was the uh, the, the supply chain shortages. Um, some of yeah, the, there, some there's of, a phrase we didn't use uh, outside of certain logistics enterprises. We yeah. you know we didn't use supply chain in general language. No. No, not unless we worked for a, a retail outlet or something like that. Uh, but yeah, everyone knows now you go into a grocery store and there's no brown sugar. Uh, the grocery store guy will say, well, yeah, we have a supply chain problem. And you know what that means. Um, yeah. Uh, Susan Sontag wrote a, wrote a book called Illness as Metaphor. And she, she talked about, uh, and that was about cancer. And she talked in that book about how... When we started using military terms to uh, to describe the effect of cancer on society, so you know we have a we fight, we have a battle against cancer. We we have drugs that target cancer. Uh, we uh, you know that that kind of military phrasing, uh, and we we did use the same kind of thing in uh, with COVID. You know the the vaccines target or or they they act like a bullet for for. Uh, for COVID and then using words like lockdown um, again, mili- sort of military phraseology that that uh, to describe what we're doing with that with uh, to to mitigate the effects of the of the disease. All right, the book is Pandexicon: How the Language of the Pandemic Defined Our New Cultural Reality. Wayne, thanks for the time. We could keep chatting, but uh, we both have to get on with the day. But that that was a fascinating look back. Um, some good memories, some bad memories, some stuff I want to forget. Right. I think that's, <laughs> that's, that sums it up pretty well, Brian. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the time, Wayne. Uh, this uh, is an episode of Full Comment. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name is Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon, whatever device or app you're listening to. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review or a rating, and tell your friends all about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.